Warning. What you're about to hear may contain mature language, adult situations, and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. What if I just breathe heavily into the microphone? You always do. I'm always having to, like, chop out you. You're, like, saying something, and you're like... Yeah, Keith, yeah, you said it, pal. We're talking about movies. And then we... <laughs> what if I just... But what if I'm even more so? I'm just like, the whole time, I'm like, everyone you're talking, I'm like... <sighs> yeah, you do that sometimes, too. Cool. <laughs> We're back. It's me, Elliot Greenman, and Keith Vance with the Trash Heap Podcast, the show where we uh, go through the trash and pull out movies and give discarded gems a second chance. Yeah, we're putting those stinky DVDs right back in the DVD player. I've watched uh, Click 47 times just for this podcast. I think I've seen about 10 seconds of that movie. I have not seen that movie at all. I just thought about that, though, because there's an Instagram account where somebody just kind of changes the cover of Click a little bit, and that's almost every post that they make. Oh, nice. It's actually really funny. Yeah, there's an account that photoshops uh, Leatherface into a different photos every single day until they run it out of ideas. Most of them are like historical photos too. So it's like Leatherface in like an old timey baseball photo. I'll, I'll find the link to that Instagram account. That's and, funny. Uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, we got a, we got a show today though. Uh, it's a little bit different than what we normally do, huh, Keith? Yeah, this is uh, pretty unique. Normally, we are always saying this is a special episode because of some dumb bullshit, but yeah. this is actually a special episode because normally we don't talk about television shows. No, but this this episode we are talking about a television show. And what we're going to talk about it's not just it's not a regular television show. We're getting super meta because we're talking about a television show that talks about movies. Yeah, and not so only are we going to talk about the show, but we're going to talk about the movies also. So we're we're getting into uh, incredibly lazy territory. I'm just like, well, we can just talk about this thing that's already someone else already talked about. I think it's actually a better value. This is like the five layer dip of yes of movie conversations. So right, you're getting a you're getting some beans. You're getting some red sauce, maybe a second type of bean, maybe a little guacamole, sour cream, and cheese on top. Well, I think there's a merit too to responding to someone else's interpretation, particularly when someone else's interpretation is bizarre. You know, which is not maybe a hundred percent what we're doing today, but I'm just saying in general, there's it's not devoid of merit to do this kind of like meta commentary. Well, we're also not just responding to something that some Yahoo or some nobody off the street said. Yeah, people like us. These are the people that were there working on these movies in the shit, trying to get this stuff in the can and make it happen. And they've got some pretty great stories and incredible experiences. And so I think it's worth, you know, highlighting that and talking about those folks and what they went through because making movies can sometimes be hell. Yeah, we're talking about the show Cursed Films, which is a show on the streaming network Shudder. 
uh, it's a Shutter original. And normally, you know, Shutter originals can be pretty um, iffy in terms of quality. This show is very well done, in my opinion. Uh, a lot better than a lot of the other kind of things of its ilk or podcasts like it or other kind of critical examinations of this of this particular style where it talks specifically about troubled productions. Basically, movies where either there was some sort of horrible disaster on set, like The Crow, where Brandon Lee is accidentally murdered, um, or accidentally killed, I guess not murdered, uh, or movies that are just plagued by, you know, small problems or weird happenings throughout. Yeah, or Uh, even movies that had sort of um, a legacy of consequences post-production. Right. Uh, So the first season covers movies like The Exorcist, The Omen, Poltergeist, like you said, The Crow, and Twilight Zone, the movie, which is sort of notorious and infamous for uh, people actually dying uh, in the the production of that movie. And then the second season, I've not watched all of the second season yet. Have you finished the second season? I have, and obviously the, the... all the episodes in the first season are kind of the big ones and sort of the most notorious and and the most famous for their their stories. Um, the the Omen episode actually has a few extra tidbits that even I didn't know, which was really interesting. Like uh, the the planes flying back and forth from the Hollywood to England, constantly getting struck by lightning. Yeah, as if God Himself said. You better stop making this movie, otherwise it's going to be trouble. <laughs> but yeah, the Little. second season is interesting. It's one of these show premises that you wonder if how fast it's going to run out of steam and they're going to start kind of reaching for content. And I think the second season started out a little wishy-washy with episodes like The Wizard of Oz, which, you know, there's certainly stories to be had, but they don't quite have the the gut punch of most of those first season episodes, but episodes like Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Serpent and Rainbow, and uh, Cannibal Holocaust sort of bring it back around and really show what this format is all about because there's some truly incredible stories from those films. They also cover a movie called Stalker. That episode is more of an exercise in i don't know sort of like existential existential dread yeah i i didn't i wasn't that interested in in that episode so much but i don't know i feel like they're all sort of worth watching on their own merit but uh definitely some stick out a lot more than others and that's what we're going to be talking about two episodes that really stood out to me and kind of spurred me along as you guys may have heard in the last episode uh the serpent and the rainbow and cannibal holocaust and speaking of cannibal holocaust so that's one of those movies amongst the horror fan community of like on the list of essential viewing type movies and it's you know famous for being like one of the most controversial movies of all time and blah 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 and it's a movie that neither you or i had ever watched and we watched it. Yep, finally finally bit the bullet after it floating around in the periphery for nearly 20 years of my life. I finally took the leap after watching this show. I was like, it's time. We're going to talk about whether or not we whether or not it actually is essential viewing. Spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> 
Do you have a favorite episode overall? Like, there was one that really struck out to you the most? I actually thought, overall, probably the Serpent and the Rainbow had the best use of the show format. Not just documenting what happened when the cast and crew went other there, but kind of in a bigger cultural picture, There's mm-hmm. they, they kind of show the perception and impact of the film by yeah. kind of the culture that it was made at the expense of. And that's really interesting. I agree. I think that part about it I really liked. For me, I think the overall <clears throat> most impactful episode or favorite episode is the Twilight Zone episode, the Twilight Zone, the movie episode from the first season. Because, you know, that was a, you know, somewhat famously two people were died during the production of it, uh, Vic Morrow and a young child were both decapitated by a helicopter, and the director, John Landis, went on trial for murder, and he was acquitted. Uh, and for me, I think that was the the most I- I- interesting episode because there was a, it was something, uh, an event I already knew a lot about. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's publicly a lot of information and interviews right. and things like that available. But then hearing, you know, interviews from people who were on set and more about the, the, the actual family who, who lost a child and how that child was hired and all these things and just, it illuminated it beyond just the events and it made it interesting. It also was interesting to me in the sense of like hearing people talk about it and talk about their careers and whatnot and how it affected them personally or affected their careers and their takeaway on it. And then also kind of just like looking up what they did after that was pretty interesting, interesting in, in terms of like their presentation of what happened to them and then the reality of what they actually, how they actually went forward with their career and life after that. Yeah, most of the interviews in that episode end with people sobbing. It's a heavy subject matter. Uh, and it also does not paint John Landis, the director, in a in a good light at all. It kind of pulls together all of the stories and all of the interviews and everything where he's sort of this maverick cowboy filmmaker who had a, you know, a portion of the budget set aside on Blues Brothers for cocaine. And, yeah. and it kind of reveals him as like, well, maybe this guy like isn't the kind of the folk hero we all thought he was and maybe maybe he didn't know when to say when obviously true but one thing i also thought was very interesting about it like just kind of how like how people present you know their experience versus you know i don't know like the production designer who worked on the film and speaks extensively because john landis moved pieces of the set around without his consent and that is one of the things that caused the accident that ended up killing the two people. Um, and when you hear him talking about it, he talks about it with such emotion and such regret and such anger towards John Landis. Yeah. That, that I think is all true and legitimate, you know. And But then, like, I looked up his filmography and he went on to work with John Landis on two subsequent films. Which I'm not necessarily holding judgment about that, but he doesn't, that one was never brought up. And I mean, why did he choose to do that? Was it because his, you know, he needed money or whatnot? It's just a odd, you know, it's just, 
And I know this is not me defending John Landis either, because I think he's definitely the bad guy in this situation by a long shot. Oh, without question. You know, there's no like, well, he was just trying to make art and an accident's happened and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, he yeah, just can't did make an omelet without breaking some eggs. He definitely wasn't trying to hurt people, but he didn't. No. He thought he was, you know, a little big for his britches. And I imagine they probably, you know, buried the hatchet. Such a tough scenario to to deal with because people can change and the things you did when you were young you wouldn't necessarily do when you were older but there's circumstances where those mistakes you make you can't take back because they've irrevocably altered someone else's life right and it's (laughs) it doesn't matter how much you've changed or how much you apologize because those people are not coming back I mean, even think of something like even more benign than, you know, changing the set around carelessly to, and doing an ex, a very dangerous stunt with a kid who was hired illegally, not within the Actors Guild and all this stuff. And just think about if like you were like changing music on your iPhone while driving and then you hit somebody and killed them. Like you wouldn't be a bad person per se, but like how do you move on with that that event yeah it's uh, the crow is such a perfect example of that because it it really was just a minor act of negligence but yeah it because they weren't disciplined in what they were doing uh someone lost their life and you could talk about all the conspiracy theories and the urban legends and all that stuff but at the end of the day it really was just a like a production snafu that that led to that that's it like, no do-overs. Yeah, no do-overs. Ain't that the truth? Whose fucking idea was to do this show, man? Now I'm depressed. It was yours, Keith. It's a really good show. It was show, yours. To be fair, it's a it really w- good show. Oh, you mean whose idea was it to make the show Curse Films or to talk about it? <laughs> All of it. It was your idea to watch Curse Films. It was your idea to watch Cannibal Holocaust. No, it's true. And it's so interesting. Like, in the moment, like, this stuff is so mesmerizing. And you can't believe that it's something these people went through. And, like, and they talk about now at the, you know, as they get into the later stages of their lives and it's, uh, it makes for some incredible stories. Absolutely. You know, like, I just want to point out, I've been recommending movies like Yes, Madam and Protector, fun movies. Right? Some of our lowest rated shows uh, in the entire run of this podcast. That is not <laughs> true. That is not even true. If we want to get down to, you know what the lowest rated show in our podcast is? Snow days, uh, snow dogs, Keith. Yeah, don't even don't, don't even try. Well, that's because uh, everyone was the power was out during the winter. See, people don't couldn't even. listen to the they couldn't charge their devices. And listen to the do show. not even try. You're gonna go down. They didn't finish the episode because they were too busy uh, digging out their uh, ska mixtapes and mix CDs to listen to. Get out of here. <laughs> That's the thing I'm bringing to the table. And then you're like, hey, let's watch a movie that will make us hate our lives. Let's talk more about the yours, the uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow. Yeah, The Serpent and the Rainbow. This is a movie, and you hate its guts. I you, don't... you hate Bill Pullman, you hate Wes Craven, and you hate Voodoo. I don't actually hate this movie, but I ha- find, think it has a lot of... It's, I don't think it's great. I think it's very problematic, even for the time at which it came out. And it kind of just solidifies, you know, also watching this episode and hearing about what 
what's Craven's intent with the movie was and how he was planning to make it and what his ideas were solidifies my opinions of Wes Craven, Craven of him being a complete hack who thought he was a genius. I don't think that he thought he was a genius. I think he was it, it, thought he that, was borderline. So you think that he thought he was a genius? Or do you think that people he worked with and people around him told him that he was a genius? I think people he worked with saw that he made some movies that were highly profitable and had become hits. I think he genuinely thought, and this is based off of things he's said, that he was making movies that were much deeper than they were in actuality. Well, did, did he think that, or yes. was that his intention? Do, do you think Both. that he really thought that the end product conveyed those intentions? Maybe not in every single movie that he made. Maybe not like, maybe Shocker wasn't supposed to be like this big, deep thing, but I... <laughs> And when he talks about it, when he, when he talks about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and he criticizes certain sequels to it and then compares it to his, his and he compares it into this way that he thinks he's making something far beyond just like a creepy movie. I genuinely think that he, like when you hear him talk about Last House on the Left, even though he's like, I would change this, I would change that, but his intent and his opinion of the final product, he thinks he's making things much greater than than they are well in his defense i'll i'll stand here and defend a the the deceased his son according to his son during the last house on the left and hills have eyes sort of era apparently he was an absolute maniac he was completely out of his mind yeah whether he was you know dropping acid or doing mushrooms or what i cannot I cannot say for sure. I don't think yeah. there's any sort of documentation, but I wouldn't uh, put any stock into anything that was said during that time. And by all accounts, too, he's he's always referred to as being a very like nice guy and like kind, you know, not like a di- dictator on on set or anything like that. Like, I'm not making personal attacks against him as a human being. His place in cinema history as this master of horror and suspense and all this stuff, I think is so wildly undeserved. Even though I enjoy some of his movies. You I know, think I might that say. title, that whole notion is kind of absurd. Of like the, the masters of horror and like all these directors and all these guys who, they, they created landmark pieces of art, right? But I think most of those, those people that we consider quote unquote masters of horror are wildly inconsistent. Like I like a lot of Toby Hooper movies, but really his, his big contributions are Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist. Yeah. Poltergeist is kind of a, a huge point of contention. Uh, And actually in the, the Poltergeist episode of Curse Films, they spend a good amount of time talking about the, kind of the urban legend of who really directed that film. Was it Steven Spielberg or was it Toby Hooper? And what was, I mean, I think, who was responsible for what and who can take credit for right. it and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's that argument, but I mean, obviously I think Toby Hooper directed it. He directed it the way Steven Spielberg wanted him to direct it. You know, he's like, I'm hiring you to make this type of movie. Yeah. He was like, yes here no, to use know? my crew and my people and right. it's going to look a certain way and whatever, but but Toby Hooper also directed cool movies like uh, 
life force and yeah life force and invaders from mars do you okay sidetrack do you think invaders from mars is a cool movie or has cool uh puppets yeah i like invaders from mars it's an okay movie with with some very cool like monster effects at the end but uh it's not like i wouldn't call it a great movie right no i really like though the it's it's literally just an old like an old black and white B movie with a slight update. And I like uh, the, the, the isolation of the kid and like, there's yeah. only one adult he can trust. And I think there is some, some cool stuff, but yeah, it's not like it's, it's definitely like, I think it's more likable than it is, you know, great. Yeah. That makes sense. But yeah, back to, but the serpent in uh, the rainbow, right. you son of a bitch. Sorry. <laughs> one of the biggest and most interesting takeaways from the episode is the idea that this was like Wes Craven was always like John Carpenter in, in the same way. He was always trying to get out of horror. He made his horror movies, but that was sort of like in the same way a painter has kind of a, a period where they're doing a style or have a tone or whatever their muse is at the time. Like Wes Craven wanted to get out of horror. And in a lot of ways, the serpent in the rainbow was supposed to be his, his exit and his transition into more mainstream or I guess, you know, kind of traditional storytelling. And he didn't right, this, get out. Kind of like this transitional film where it's got a little elements of this and that, but I'm, you know, I'm uh, moving into more serious drama territory. Yeah. Like when John Carpenter made Starman. Right. Well, what's funny about that too, is because this movie about voodoo practitioners in Haiti which I think it's important to note that, that, I mean, I think at this point, most people are aware that the way voodoo is portrayed in Hollywood is wildly inaccurate and has nothing to do with actual voodoo, which is essentially just the religion of a group of people. Uh, this was, It was based on a book by an anthropologist, which that book in and of itself is somewhat controversial, but is not a horror-related story. It's just more about like how, how thorough was the research and whatnot that's where the controversy comes in um or how credible was the research uh it's not it's not a horror book and he convinced the director that he was the right guy or he he convinced the author of the book that he was the right guy for the job by saying he wanted to get out of horror and then he makes up a straight up horror exploitation movie that does all of the things that every hollywood movie about voodoo has done for the last hundred years you know and that's where I'm talking about him being a hack. I'm going to do this. And then he can't. He can't do those things. He falls back onto he falls back onto these tropes, but convinces himself that he's not doing that and convinces himself that he's making something else. Yeah, it also seems like at the end of the day, like he's kind of a pushover when he's involved with studios. Because he might go into a movie with all these intentions and these sort of lofty goals and ambitions but by the time it gets to editing and releasing the movie he caves yeah like on on that sort of the final stretch but i really like that amongst all these you know stories and things like that they included a lot of focus on the crew's experience in being in haiti and being exposed to that culture and kind of what it meant and what they saw from their perspective and then also just the cultural reaction to the movie itself. Like they screened this movie for the people in Haiti 
and kind of had like a you know like a panel discussion about it or whatever where they're like you know what's your reaction to this movie and the reaction was such a mixed bag it was it was the polar opposite of oh this is an incredible representation of our culture to uh, this is just Hollywood nonsense, and this is in no way accurate. And by listening to the stories of the crew, you can kind of get a sense that it it was kind of sensationalism and and very absurd. I don't know if it was to a uh, you know to what degree necessarily, but it's just interesting to hear just the varied reactions and perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I think too, with the with the reaction, you're saying that when they show it, because they show it to a, that panel discussion is from a relatively modern or uh, a relatively uh, current event, it seems like. It doesn't seem yeah. like it was from when the movie was actually made. And yeah, there's some people saying like, yeah, this is just a bunch of nonsense. And someone, another person says like, oh, well, you know, there's some fantastical elements to it, but in some ways it's, a great representation of our culture and it's unfortunate it came from Hollywood and I challenge a Haitian filmmaker to do even better. And I think that's a unique perspective from watching it, like watching someone who's embedded in that culture watch it versus, you know, an audience here watching it because we see all the cliches and stuff that's we've seen a hundred times in movies and in the, in the very negative stereotypes we've seen a hundred times in movies from watching it here, if you haven't seen those movies, you know, potentially, and you're from the culture in which the story takes place, you might see elements. You'd be like, yeah, that's kind of a fantasy part, but this part's right here is correct here, you know? Does that make sense? And I, that's evident in so many <laughs> Western movies where our ignorance is kind of toyed with to to get like a thrill ride experience. Right. And it's it's like we're so guilty of it when it comes to like voodoo or like things of the far east, like you know yeah. sh- like Shaolin monks and and eastern religions and things like that. It really is just like like the golden child. Right. Right? That like the whole premise of that movie is like eastern mysticism like let's put a streetwise fish out of water in a in a bunch of eastern magic and even like uh, it's spoofed very well in uh, almost perfectly in big trouble in little china right right like we get to we get to actually insert the bumbling ignorant american into the the proceedings yeah i think that's a good that's a good example and like you said like the asian mysticism and the way like our culture interprets that you know in america versus the way it would be interpreted actually in China, like say to an American audience, right? An an Asian American audience, a Chinese American audience, you could watch Gremlins and see the very stereotypical old antique store owner man and be like, store owner man, not stoner man, and see him and be like, this is a very cliched character. This is a, a stereotype. This is offensive, which it is. However, if you were a viewer in like in a Chinese viewer in China, you could be like, oh, well, we have characters like this in our movies all the time. It's not offensive. The flip side of that is they also have uh, characters in the movies where Asian men are lawyers and doctors and teachers and all these other th- all these other yeah. things. There's this broader representation, so it's not a stereotype. There, it's just one of the archetypical characters that you see in a lot of these fantasy movies. But here, that's the only type of representation, so therefore it becomes the stereotype. And I think that's kind of what was going on 
with the uh, Serpent and the Rainbow, you know, when they showed the movie to a Haitian audience, that some people said like, yeah, that's kind of not real, but whatever. It's just a little bit of this. And they're not seeing it because they're not seeing it as this repeated stereotype over and over and over and over and over again across the uh, cinema history in American films. And it's so wild too, because they were immersed in the Haitian culture. Like they went to these voodoo ceremonies and, you know, drank strange liquids and had like these experiences and it seemingly had little impact on the movie. Right. Like they were going to, they were just doing the movie as it was. Right. But, but everyone on the cast and crew kind of had all these like varying uh, experiences like that really affected them. But you don't necessarily get a sense of that from the movie. Not at all. No. Like Bill Pullman, who is in the starring role specifically, he was part of something that really like changed him. And like he tells the the story in kind of vague terms because he's, I guess he's uh, doesn't want to like, you know, he says something like, "I don't know how I should explain this because I don't know how open the audience is," but. Uh, from what he tells it, it sounds like he almost had something like a near-death experience. I think it was called a bad dream. Teehee. You've hated, you've been bullying Bill Pullman for years. And now he's in the, the twilight of his life and you still want to just keep him under your thumb. He's not in the twilight. He's not that old. He was pretty old, man. His, uh, he's still got a, like a ridiculous head of hair, though. That son of a bitch. That's true. But well, that looking, could be fake. That, that could be fake, you know. He's looking pretty haggard, though. He's finally... He's no longer the romantic comedy lead that we all know and love. Yeah, it was a good episode. I liked it. <laughs> More entertaining than the movie. It's so strange, too. In a lot of ways, like shows like this are actually more interesting than the movie. Like They're, they're amazing companion pieces, but they stand on their, their own two feet yeah. because, it's the, again, it's the stories of the people that were there, not a bunch of stupid talking heads uh, you know, putting together information sort of piecemeal from assorted interviews and things that they read and whatever, uh, they were there. Yeah. And granted, you know, there's you sometimes you have to take things with a grain of salt. Like people's memories aren't aren't perfect and also perspective makes a big difference in when you're telling a story, right? That mm-hmm. can really change who's the villain and who's the hero and all that kind of stuff. Oh, totally. But yeah. It's like when you get, you do really get the, that the one story they tell of when all the, they got all these volunteers to be in the movie and they were paying them like, I don't know, like $3 a day or something. And some of them got a raise and the word spread around and it turned into this huge revolt. And so yeah. one of the guys from the crew is like, he's like standing on a bus with a megaphone trying to negotiate with everyone and get them back to work. And then they start pelting him with rocks and everyone's like, has to like flee. Really? And this is actually something that I wish that episode had touched on more because like you said, they come in, you know, they have the, they go to these ceremonies, all this stuff and like the cast and crew who, you know, partake in the culture, but it doesn't really seem to impact the movie. Not just the hubris, but also just the outright, you know, subconscious bigotry of these filmmakers and studios as they come in and they go like, 
oh, we're the, these people work in this country. They make like a dollar a day chopping sugar cane. We'll give them three bucks. You know, we'll be, we're being so generous. Yeah, this is a right? lot of money for them. For them. But then they're also well aware that you have millions of dollars and everyone else is getting paid so much more money. And you could be paying me, you know, just your equivalent of minimum wage in your country easily, but you're choosing not to, you know? Yeah, the and, very nature of the filmmaking process or the like the Hollywood, you know, film process is is cannot escape exploitation. No, and this is like and this particular here is still it's like they come in with this attitude of how, you know, that you hear the producer talking about it's like, I thought I had this great rapport with these people and blah, 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 blah. I gave them three bucks. And it's like you will never have a great rapport with people if the the core aspect of your relationship is exploitation, particularly when you are so delusional that you don't even realize that you're exploiting them. You think you're being like incredibly generous and in, in giving and all and all this stuff. You know, yeah, it's it's absurd. I was gonna say obviously there's exchange rates and whatnot, and you know sometimes you choose to shoot somewhere because it's cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all well and good, whatever. But like, this is clearly like, hey, do you know we can get away with paying these people just a couple bucks a day and they'll be happy, you know? Yeah. It's pretty grotesque. And speaking of exploitation. Jesus Christ. I think it's time that we get down to brass tacks here and talk about this cannibal bullshit. I really don't want to give this movie too much time because I don't think it deserves it. And it's gotten so much time over the years of people talking about it and debating it. And No, and I don't want to get into like uh, the nitty gritty of, you know, scene by scene and the infamous moments and things like that. But I did, I feel like I did have a very interesting reaction to it. And also the, the Cursed Films episode is arguably the best in the whole series run the, the that episode is very good i would not say it's the best but I, I i did really like the episode itself um as we said earlier this is one of those movies that is like quote unquote essential viewing for true horror fans or two genre cinema fans and seeing this movie finally for the first time I've honestly never had a huge interest in seeing it because I'd read about it. I knew what this, the deal was, why it was, you know, uh, controversial and whatnot. And basically uh, watching it confirmed every suspicion or assumption I had about it tenfold. And that this is a movie lacking in any merit, artistic merit, Um and is I personally wasn't like horribly offended by the what's on the screen itself, except for there are certainly some awful moments. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say I walked away feeling like horribly bothered by what I saw. I'm more bothered by the fact that this movie has a place in the cultural zeitgeist. You want to talk about delusion. You want to talk about someone who thought he was making something that he wasn't? I give you Exhibit A, Rogero Deodato. He is so far up his own ass. <laughs> oh, dude. We're never going to get him out. <laughs> 
he comes into the episode of the show already playing the victim, right? Yes. He he shows up minute one and he's like, "The French call me Mister Cannibal," and they they love call. They've been calling me that for years. <laughs> As he he's in a restaurant where they're chopping up like brains and livers, and he's like sitting yeah. there eating, like this fucking guy. So let's give like a just a very quick detail of what the movie is and why it's controversial just for those who who may not know so cannibal holocaust is an italian movie from 1980 directed by the dude you just mentioned depicting a group of documentarian filmmakers who get who go go to film some tribes in south american jungle don't come back they find the film canisters and it depicts all the horrors that they experience and commit themselves it has graphic depictions of cannibalism, rape, and the actual killing of real animals on on film uh, for food, allegedly for food purposes. Allegedly. It was notoriously controversial for these images and for the fact that allegedly the director went on trial for murder because they, and he had to present, bring the uh, actual actors into the courtroom to prove that he didn't kill anybody. Yes. Uh, which I've heard that that is kind of like largely fairy taleized. Well, and one of the actors sort of corroborates that because he, one of the main performers in this episode, is interviewed and says, I, I signed no paperwork or contract saying that I would not appear in any movies for a year in order to kind of sell, help sell the, right. the film. And he was never dragged into court in any right. capacity over the movie. So. Right. I've read that he, that he was like they were pulled into court for other reasons of, you know, obscenity charges. And then they kind of just played that up for a publicity stu- stunt saying like, oh, we had to bring in the actors to prove that we didn't kill them. Yeah. And so this movie is highly, you know, controversial for those reasons. And it's, there's also a debate about whether it is art or trash. And the main debate coming stemming from this paper thin idea that there's this notion in the film that because the the documentarians from the west from the you know the quote unquote civilized culture come in and then do all these bad things are they the real monsters but it is so so some people say like oh it's just a beautiful allegory of you know modern society and the director has said that he wanted to make this movie because he was watching uh, news, you know, programs and seeing how they were sensationalizing actual, you know, uh, new like world horrors. But the the act the, the, in term not and not to say that you couldn't make a movie that does that, but it is so paper thin here. And it's honestly, this is not a new idea or a new representation of to try and justify the crappy movie or the exploitive movie you have made. That's gone from the silent area, silent era where there would be a little blurb at the beginning would say like the, the what you are about to see is depicted solely for educational and historical purposes and then it's like now here's a notice colony and we're going to give you close ups of a bunch of tits you know this is nothing new and this movie like i said like i've seen worse things you know i mean like i did not enjoy watching the animals being slaughtered but i've seen videos of factory farming you know that is that are far worse saving private ryan is much more violent than this movie this so that the violence wasn't disruptive to me. This is just like I said. This is such 
garbage. When a movie uh, like Saving Private Ryan has uh, emotional investment. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like this movie, this movie is just a boring, poorly made piece of, of film that exists solely for shock value that is some for some reason garnered this debate about whether or not it is art. I'll be the first to tell you, of course it's art. That That's not even question. What do you mean by that? The act of creation is art, right? If I take a sticky note and draw a doodle on it and put it on the wall, that's still art. Okay, you, yes. You can, you can debate its merit all day long, whether it's it's good, bad, you know, worthy of, of display or consumption or whatever, but they created something and the, the fundamental act of creation, uh, in my mind, makes it, Art. Okay, so that in that broadest of terms, sure. Yeah. But in terms of like the discussion, you know. Yeah. Uh, what what it con- actually contributes by way of its subject matter is certainly open to debate. <laughs> yes. And I will say I had a a very strange experience watching this because right out of the gate I was laughing at how poorly made it was, as if these people had never either seen a movie or you know, studied filmmaking a second in their life. It's so, it's it's a very clunky, it, almost to an embarrassing degree. As it goes on, I think they accidentally stumble onto some pretty innovative techniques in terms of technical filmmaking. And I don't sure. think it was by design. No. And I don't know who is responsible. Like in a lot of ways, uh, through movie analysis, you can point to someone and say, oh, there's the person responsible for this this amazing thing that happened in this movie. Here, it's anybody's fucking guess. <laughs> to be completely fair in that sense, I think that you're right. There are moments where there is some sort of technical thing that works. Uh, I think at times the music is used effectively. I was uh, shocked and appalled and gobsmacked that that idiotic musical theme brought yeah. back in the climax of the movie started working. Or even in the middle, too, where they play it while they're burning the village, you know? Yeah. That, that, that scene, I was like, this is a semi-effective scene and transposed into a completely different movie could work. Yeah, there is a handful of of things like that. And I think even the the structure of the second half of the movie where it's the I don't know, I forget what the the fucking character is in this stupid thing. <laughs> the mustache yeah. guy is reviewing the documentary footage with uh, his colleagues and everything, and I think their their reactions and the way they sort of have all of these kind of intermissions to break up uh all of that that documentary footage, I think, is actually kind of effective, and and it's that, effective conceptually it in, in keeping the movie going. But I could say it's effective conceptually, but those scenes are so poorly written and filmed and acted that I mean, like, that's the thing. It's like, how did anyone ever think, you know, this, oh, is this real? How did anyone watch this movie and think it was real? You know, I mean, well, here's what I'm gonna tell you. At some point. After watching the muskrat get slaughtered and then the turtle get slaughtered and after watching a couple of rape scenes and one what seemed to be a consensual sex scene, I lost my sort of 
compass and my sort of North star for what was real and what was not. And I started looking at every single moment of kind of like lurid upsetting content with a shred of doubt. I was like, wait a second. Is that real? Wait a second. Is that real? Like I totally over the course of the movie and it's hard to give it credit because I don't know that this was by design, but I think it happened organically because of the just upsetting nature of some of those moments. Yeah. They got me. See, to me, like it's, it is genuinely upsetting the, the animal slaughter scenes and not necessarily because animals are killed on screen. I mean, like we do watch them eat the animals. And I mean, like I, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who eats meat in, in life and I could be, you could call me a hypocrite for saying like, well, these scenes are, you know, grotesque because, uh, animals are being slaughtered. I don't actually think it's because they're being killed. It is the pornographic view of watching the animals die. The voyeuristic way the camera acts and the way we're presented these these deaths. It's not there as just a documentation of like, well, we're we're hunting and we got some food and this is how we how we butcher it. It's there to 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 be lurid. Going back to the delusion of the the director, I don't think the director is is under this that same type of delusion as Wes Craven of thinking he's making art. I think he's tacking on these ideas to his exploitation film and these notions, which I said is a very old tactic of trying to justify when you make something uh, completely lurid to justify its existence and and, and uh, get it passed as a, a film. Yeah, there's a pretty incredible moment that is, is super unrelated to the movie, but one of the, the crew members was shooting a Alice Cooper concert mm-hmm. and he went to match up the footage and the audio and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And according to him, what he came to realize was that he couldn't match it up because it didn't match up. Alice Cooper was lip syncing because he was performing. I forget what he says after that, but he, he sort of ends the that that portion of the interview by saying, it's all rock and roll, man. Yeah. Like, it's all a show. It's all just sensationalism. It's all nonsense. He's not wrong. But but again, like I said, they just through the, through exposure to these scenes, like in the same way that, uh, like we talk about effects, right? Right. And monster movies. CGI is bad uh, if you don't have a real world reference. But if you start right. with a real world reference, it helps everything blend together. It helps you suspend your disbelief and get kind of, it helps you buy in. And I think yeah. that's what happened to me. See, to me, like, uh, that's what I was saying. I got, I got lost there for a second. To me, like, there's those re- those things in there that are so unbelievably, obviously real. And then you get into other parts where it's like, there's scenes where, like, oh, someone's being cut open, but it's clearly that they're just dragging a dull rock ac- across a bloody stomach that has no actual wound in it that it looks that it looks so completely fake. Right. Uh, there's a scene where 
the anthropologist is like in a ceremony and he has to eat some human organ to uh, gain the trust of the tribe. And they hold up, which I'm sure is just pig or cow guts. And he pretends to bite into it. And then it cuts to his mouth. And when he's chewing in his mouth, you can see cooked, the meat he's eating is clearly cooked meat. Oh, you yeah. know. And it's like, this shit is so fake with some actual things that were not fake, super implanted into it. But I can so quickly tell the difference. Yeah, that was pretty early on. That is early on. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I n- at never at a time was, was I watching something that was like an, a murder or one of that stuff that I thought that it was a possibility that it was real. Yeah, and it makes me wonder what my reaction would have been if had I known nothing about this. And it's like yeah. it's one of those scenarios where like I would love to go back in time and watch a movie like this when it came out or Texas Chainsaw or any of these movies that have sort of this incredible mythology behind it. Because like what what would it be like to be someone going in totally cold without any of these, you know, outside information. If I allowed myself to somehow get, you know, so wrapped up in it, you know, here in the future, after watching the the interviews and, you know, understanding the that it's totally phony, uh, right. you know, what must it have been like back then? Well, I think it would be shocking to watch this movie back then going in cold because of a lot of the things we... Of the mentioned, and I think there's often a confusion with something sticking with you, being confused with it having merit. You know, like um, one time I went went into work in the morning, and someone had taken a shit in front of the building, and I had to clean up that shit. That is a memory that has stuck with me. You know, I would not say it's a me- it's an event that has merit to it, and this is. Watching this movie is a cinematic equivalent of cleaning shit off of your sidewalk. Like I said, I wasn't grotesquely offended by the movie in and of itself as a, as a thing where I was just like, oh my God, the violence or this or that. I was, I'm offended knowing that there was actual exploitation of actors and the local people that occurred. I mean, I'm a, and I'm offended that this movie has this place in cinema history of being often considered a a piece of socially significant uh a film well that's exactly it isn't it 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 isn't that everyone thinks that there's so much merit and value to it it is the equivalent of like oh i have a photo of a severed head like do you want to see it yeah like no one had ever seen things like this and it it would there's a certain possibility like they would never see anything like it again and so it gets passed around over and over again uh, as this kind of, you know, in a paper bag at parties right. and, and from person to person. And it just develops this larger than life aura about it. And, it's, yeah. and people are just like, you got to see this. That's the thing is like now that we're we're getting into this, like I want to keep talking about it and yeah. and see if there are people out there who are like, no, this is a good movie. Oh, I've met those people, and you know what? I've actually met several people Are like that. Are they 15? No, I'm not all of them, but I'll tell you this. <laughs> I have never been, I've never been like surprised by the type of person who thinks this is, is art or has defended it as art. Yeah. I've never been like, oh, really, you think that? It's always been a very specific type of 
uh, movie nerd or movie fan. And it's generally the type of person who makes horror movies their complete identity. And I will add this. It's a type of person who made horror movies their complete identity prior to podcasts or, or shows like My Favorite Murder, you know, prior to, prior to that. Yeah, where back when this stuff was a little bit harder to find. You yeah, know? sort of self-identifying sickos who, oh, I've seen the grossest, the nastiest, right? Like the the goriest, like I'm a splatter, like a gore hound, like and exa- exactly make... like uh, young Michael in uh, Brain Scan. He's, yes, he's seen it all. He's done it all. There are no thrills left to be had, and they all offer the same exact like regurgitated line about like well it's it's actually a commentary on the media and they made trash to show you that it is trash you know and sorry sorry like i'm not saying you couldn't potentially do that but you didn't do it here well it still can be a commentary but that does again that doesn't make it good right it, just because it is a just commentary because it is yeah doesn't... and like i said prior to seeing this i've seen movies that are I mean, like the opening, the opening, like, and yes, you're right, the gravitational weight and all this stuff and what is the meaning, but that's what makes a movie good is what is the purpose. Uh, the opening, uh, the storming of, of Normandy uh, scene in Saving Private Ryan is just as, if not more violent than this, or has images at least, you know, maybe not the entire movie, and has much more believable gore effects. And to me, that was... When I watched that for the first time, as, as you know, when it came out as a young person, that was far more jarring to me than anything I saw in this because I said it was so obviously just fake and gross to me. You know, it was it was gross, but it was gross the way like, hey, why are you eating that moldy piece of pizza? That's gross. That's the the way I felt about this movie being gross for the most part. With most of the things I I, I saw, it was gross, but it, it wasn't. It didn't elicit like this primal response from me and also this movie is just painfully boring yeah i'll agree it is not uh it is not terribly interesting or exciting like you said it is it is like looking at something really gross like the images and and things like that get burned into your brain ultimately they they screw the pooch with terrible dialogue and just dipshit characters that bring nothing to the table and no real story either like i said they accidentally stumbled upon some kind of ingenious and clever filmmaking techniques and so is that the lasting legacy of this movie i don't think so maybe unconsciously the people that that saw this movie took some of those techniques and you moved them forward i mean but this is not the first like fake documentary it's not the first kind of like sensationalized images of 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 the world you know type of type of idea, type of concept of we're going deep into the jungle to, to discover these barbaric you know practices blah 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 like all this stuff is i mean to me like so much of this movie in terms of just like structure and uh and and concept are as old as movies themselves. It's just the sheer gross factor, you know? Oh, sure. And I think the the biggest takeaway from the actual episode, the uh, movie aside, the, the biggest takeaway from the actual episode is that 
you know, like the the cast really explains it is they were all just young and stupid and wanted to be in a movie. And yeah, once they, they didn't were know what they were there, getting themselves into. Yeah, and once they were there, it was like, well, I'm here in this movie and they're paying me. Like, what am I willing to do? And they were willing to, like, to push it pretty fucking far. Yeah. Well, and it's that thing, too. It's like, perhaps, what am I willing to do? It's like, you get, perhaps you are caught up in these moments of just like, my boss is telling me to do something. I guess I better do it. And okay. And then it's just like, he keeps inching it further and further of the horrible things he's asking people to do on screen. And that's where like, also like, I can't justify this movie because he, the claim that this is a movie about exploitation and about how the media exploits things. Well, you, 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 you actually exploited your cast and the locals, Tremendously, tremendously in the making of this movie, and even if you don't know that, just watching the before they get to their quote unquote message part of the movie, the movie itself is exploitive. It does all of the things that it's essentially criticizing, uh, or uh, supposedly criticizing other forms of media of doing. You know, it's like it has this pornographic eye to it the entire time. And then you can't, you just tack on a character at the end saying like, who are the real cannibals all along? You know, it's like, sorry, like you don't get to do that. I can't believe that was the last line of the movie. I can, I can, I can completely believe that having watched the rest of the movie. Like if I had sat there through the entire editing and post-production of this movie, I would have been like, we don't really need to say it. We've already spelled it out very clearly, right? Like it right. is it is so you might as well have whacked everyone over the head with a sledgehammer that said, Here's the message of my movie. Right. Like it really was just so un like I cackled. I cackled at that line. I, it was unbelievable. Well, that's just kind of supports like the f- same like tacked on notion that I'm talking about is like we'll throw in these lines about it being about this to justify what we've made as something not just not just as a, as like a cheap schlock, you know, shock piece to, to sell tickets. And because, like, if the movie had actually done what it was set out, it's claiming it was doing, the like you said, the line would be completely unnecessary. But it does, ultimately, it, it makes so much sense why the people that were exposed to this as a teenager, why this stuck with them, right? To your point, it, it's, it's, the, has... it's the image of, of human shit on a sidewalk. Like it right. just, they're, they can't believe the things they saw. They, that's all they remember, right? When you have sort of uh, memories of trauma, you remember and associate something with those adrenaline spikes, like those moments of your most right. heightened kind of sensory perception. And so you're going to take that stuff. You're not going to remember the, the boring ass part of them going up river on the boat at the beginning yeah. or or even the uh their sort of mercenary guide as they go to retrieve the film in the first half of the movie i thought that guy was kind of interesting the way he was explaining their customs and like mm-hmm. asking the mustache guy not to interfere and and all this stuff i actually thought that was i was like i'd love to see a longer movie where i get more information about the these people and like what they're doing like that's kind of cool well, but, maybe that's but the no other one's going to remember that. That's the other aspect of this movie too. Is like all these customs and these tr- the, the, are all made up. These are not real. No, 
try, you know, it's that there's these racist depictions of the uh, natives, the native people. And then at the end, it makes this claim about like, oh, they were actually the good ones, you know, but like you've portrayed them in these like totally like stereotypical, fake, phony stuff. And then claim that it was like, oh, this is just part of their culture, but it's a culture that does not exist. Do we even exist? I hope not. <laughs> You're right, though. the The episode, though, is uh, super interesting. Like, yes. the, you really get like the the director himself like shows you who he is and what he's about, and the stories from the different actors and their perspectives are endlessly fascinating. I could go I mean, back and watch that episode a third time. And honestly, if you go and you look at that director's the rest of his filmography and this you know nonsense notion that he's trying to make this social commentary movie about society and the way we interpret violence and blah 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 if you look at the rest of his filmography he he's either working solely as a director for hire like doing episodes of like soap operas or he's doing like very schlocky uh mad max knockoffs and uh conan the barbarian knockoffs there's like no there's no level of of serious storytelling, you know, in his in anything else he does. No, I mean, if he really had something to say, he would have either cre- gone off to create something else and grown as a you know storyteller and a filmmaker, or he would have moved into you know documentary filmmaking or something. But he literally was just a maniac with like one idea, and that was it. If it was even his idea, you know, like this claim that he's like, I watched the news and got this idea. I mean, he's not the screenwriter on this this movie. How much of that is just bullshit, too? You know, just the story that he's concocted after the fact to talk about, you know, to talk about this movie as he's been interviewed for it a million times. Yeah, you know? that's probably the only real missing piece of the puzzle is who the fuck wrote this movie? And yeah. is it, was it even close was it even close to what they shot? Yeah. Can you imagine? Like, you're out in the fucking, you know, the cocaine fields doing this, and, like, they're not sticking to the pages. Like, if no. you look at the movie, maybe they they stuck with some of the in-between scenes, but all of the documentary footage, all they were just winging it. So, yes, as I said before, this viewing experience just kind of confirmed everything I assumed about this movie and like why I normally don't feel compelled to watch these pieces of quote unquote essential viewing for of certain of certain uh, ilk because uh, they just don't interest me and I don't see the merit in them and mostly I just walked away annoyed bored and kind of like ticked off that this is even if I'm ticked off that we're talking about it you know <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about it because it yeah uh, I think the, the at the very minimum the discussion is is worthwhile and it's it should be said uh, most of the actors in this movie never really worked again. Yeah. They kind of just went off and did other things. The the guy that killed the turtle uh just disappeared and never came back. Yeah. So truly a cursed film. Absolutely. Well, Maybe we'll be back with something more fun next time. I certainly hope so. That that sort of uh, lingering feeling, like a, like there's a, like a little black hole 
in your chest. Like, that's how I feel right now. And I thought this would be a fun episode, and it kind of was, but man, that feeling isn't going away. So maybe we'll... Maybe we'll watch Click next time and have a have a little bit of fun. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so no, yeah. Normally we talk about movies that uh, have been thrown in the trash that don't deserve to be trash, and today we talked about just a piece of trash that may not even actually be a movie. I think you you put it best: the human shit on the sidewalk. Yeah. So uh, there you go, guys. Congra- congratulations, you made it through the end of the episode. In France, they love to call me Monsieur Cannibal. And until next time, the dumpster is closed. Goodbye, everyone. Good night and good luck. Jesus Christ. It'd be incredibly easy for me to poop in my hand and smear it on your face. Everybody go back to doing what you were doing.